Well, this is the end of this Healthy Church series, but it's really not the end because um, I hope you understand that, that you know, when I'm preaching something, it's what I really believe. And it's when I'm preaching about this is what a healthy church is, it's what I believe our church is in some ways, but needs to continue to, to move towards and be. And as we come to the end of this series, you know, when we start the next series, it's not going to be far from this. The next series is going to be asking the question, so what are the next steps? Because here's what I'm assuming. What I'm assuming is that there are at least a few of you here, and maybe, hopefully, a lot of you here, that are hearing what a healthy church is, that have been through these, these, these past eight weeks, and you've heard about it, and you've seen what God's word said in Romans 12, and you've thought on these things, and you say, that's the church. That's the direction. That's who we need to be. That's who we, we need to continue to become like. And we need to be committed to that. You know, we just sang that song, let there be light. Let there be light. And, and I kind of like that song in a way because I think it says a very it has a very powerful message, but I think sometimes we get this misconception that, that we can be like God. Because when God said, let there be light, the Bible tells us there was light. And I think sometimes that's what we think. We think like, oh, we can be like God. We can just say, let there be a healthy church, and poof, there's a healthy church. Or let there be this new program, or, or let there be... Uh, ministries helping people in the community, and they just happen. And they don't happen that way. When we say let there be light, it's a commitment from us. When we say let there be a healthy church, it is a commitment from us. It is a commitment that says we will do everything we can. We will move in that direction. We will, we will review what we've talked about because everybody's got different hang-ups. Everybody is struggling with different things. Some people, it's all the way back to that living sacrifice. They're still struggling there. They're not really surrendered to Christ. And it doesn't mean that they haven't ever become Christians, but some of them are that way. They haven't really said, you know, Jesus, you're my, you're my Lord and Savior. So for some people, it's that. But for some people, it's people who, who have prayed this prayer. They have said, Jesus, you're my Lord, you're my Savior. But they haven't been living that way. He's only been Lord of part of their lives, but not all of their life. So some people are, are struggling with the living sacrifice. Some people, you know, they kind of got that, but it's that whole discipleship thing. And maybe it's because they think they know enough. And we never know enough. When it comes to God and the things of God, we never know enough. All that I learned, the mo well, not all that I learned, the most important thing I learned in all my years of school and working on my PhD, the most important thing I learned was how much I did not know. That was the most important thing. And I remember the younger me so confident, oh yeah, I've heard everything. I've read the Bible through. 
I've been in thousands of sermons. I've studied all this stuff. And I remember the younger me thinking that I knew so much. I didn't know anything. And so the big lesson when I was working on my PhD is how much I don't know. And then how much I hunger to know more. Some people, it's that struggle with discipleship, it's, which is kind of related to that, to that pride thing. And remember, if we're going to be a healthy church, we need to leave pride outside. This needs to be based in the humility that we see modeled in Jesus Christ. We need humility. We need to put the interest of others above our own. If I were ever to think of that one thing, that one thing that can instantly change this church and instantly help this church be healthier, it would be that thing. See, discipleship will take time. It's a lifetime investment. We're disciples every day. We're constantly learning, constantly growing. That living sacrifice thing, you know, we're going to struggle with it. Because every time we think we're completely surrendered to God, God opens another door of our life that we got locked. And he says, how about this? But this idea of putting the interest of others before our own interests, if we just get that, it's going to radically change our church. And you know you're getting it. And you know you're getting it when you stop thinking about how things affect you. And you start thinking about how is this affecting others? And especially those who are not like me. Then we're getting this. Then healthy church can abound. And I'm not expecting us to get there overnight, but that's that one thing. If we want, their, if we want our church to be light in this world, what we have to understand is that in God's plan, being light in this world was never meant to be, you know, the thousand points of light of individuals that are out there doing good things. It's about the light coming together. It's the church together. Your most powerful testimony is the love and the unity and the humility and God's spirit that holds us together and helps us to go out into this world and bring light. And the whole point of this is not that we're either a healthy church or an unhealthy church or it's it's not that, oh, let's all get healthy first and then we'll be a healthy church. It is that, are we committed to it? Are we willing to take that journey together? That's what next month's sermons are all about. Who wants to take this journey together? Who wants to kind of forget the past eight weeks, kind of leave it behind? But who wants to take this and say, Let's go. I don't make you any promises. You know, some of you guys know I, I coach Kalani's cross-country team. It's my first year, kind of took over, not in the middle of the season, but after the season started. And, you know, it's been a, you know, kind of a challenge to 
kind of transition some things and to help them get the idea that, yeah, it's great to be out here with your friends, but we're a team and let's commit to something. And, and at the state championships yesterday, one of my runners, she came up to me and she said, she said, can you train us and guarantee that we'll win the state championship next year? Okay, I thought it was a little funny because there's no way I can guarantee her anything. But here's what I love. She wants to win a state championship. She wants the team to be together and work together towards a goal. And so all I can promise her is, hey, we're gonna, we, we can work. It's gonna, work's gonna start, you know, not next week, but the week after, after you rest, then we'll start working. Can't promise you'll get there, but I can promise we can go on the journey together. I can promise I can, I can give you those things that you need to do, that give us the opportunity. And so whether we ever make it to healthy church, state championship or not, it's not the point. The point is, are we committed to the journey? Are we committed to doing that? And if not, if 100% of the people here say, no, we're, we're, we're not committed, we, that's, we just kind of want to keep showing up like we've been doing, that's fine. Your choice. I can't force it. But I know what I want. And I know what I'm committed to. And I know what other people in the church that I've talked to are committed to. And they're committed to a healthy church. Let's start that journey. And so the, the last sermon we get from this Romans 12 is, is this last element. And if you forget what the different characteristics of a healthy church are, remember they're on the back of your notes. But this is a good church. A good church. And today we're going to kind of unpack what does good mean? But I think in general we have an understanding that we're not, when we talk about a good church, we're not talking about one we like. Unfortunately, that's what a lot of people think. They're like, oh, my church is good. And what they mean is, I like it. They don't mean that my church is healthy. But in this particular situation, what we're talking about when I talk about a good church is I'm talking about a good church as opposed to an evil one. And you might go, are there evil churches? It depends how you define evil. We've kind of gotten this wrong idea about evil. We've, we've made evil so just, you know, extreme. If I say evil, you know, you think, well, Adolf Hitler, Holocaust. I'm not that, so I'm not evil. Meantime, we've made good so broad. Good can be in anything. And evil is really small. That's really not the right way to think about it. It's not the way the Bible talks about evil. Evil is anything, anything, even well-intentioned things, even things that would otherwise be good. It is anything that goes against what God wants. Anything that goes against what he would want us to do. Anything that does things that he doesn't want us to do. That's good. I mean, that's evil. Good is the opposite. Good is to always do what God wants or to never do what he tells us not to do. 
I know this, you know, for some of our younger people, you may not realize that there was a time when there were not computers in the world. Um, it's been relatively recent. And when computers started coming around, they started getting into to churches and being used in churches. And there was a lot of confusion about that. And I remember one of my friends, he was on staff at, a, at another church. And he also worked in the computer industry. And he was trying to tell the other pastors that they couldn't just keep buying one personal copy of software and just copying it. He says, it's right there in the agreement. He says, it's only one copy. He said, if you want to copy it, you need to either buy you know, some kind of multi-pack or some kind of corporate package, or you need to buy more copies. And I remember that, and the church was otherwise a good church. It was growing, there's so many things happening, but there in the leadership there was a problem. And the problem was is they were okay with it. They were okay with, you know, stealing. Oh, they justified it, they didn't call it stealing, they did all these other kind of things to think about it. And even though they were confronted with it, they still refused to change. And this, this guy who is an associate pastor, he, he had to leave. You know, that happens, you know, it happens more and more. You know, we sing all these songs, and these songs, you know, we didn't write these songs. We don't own these songs. And so how do we use them? Well, we actually pay to use them. But there's a lot of people that say, hey, I'm doing God's work. Shouldn't have to pay for it. It doesn't matter what you might think is small, you might think is big. What matters is we shouldn't be using anything that's not good to do God's work. But unfortunately, sometimes we do. Sometimes I have. And when I have, I've always known it was wrong. I've had to repent and tried to go fix it. But you see, the reason that we do this is because there's this saying, and it is that the ends justify the means. The ends justify the means. You know what that means, right? It means that if what we're trying to do is good enough, it doesn't matter what we have to do to do it. It doesn't matter if along the way we have to lie a little or steal a little or bend the rules a little. Uh, all that matters is what we're trying to accomplish is good enough. Ends justify the means. That's not a new belief, by the way. They, they've traced this, some form of this saying back like thousands of years. That it just, it goes, anytime you have people that are more result-oriented, Ends justify the means. And whenever the world becomes focused more on results, especially results that have to be quantified, anytime it, re it focuses on results, 
it will always move towards this ends justifying the means. And let me tell you something. When the church becomes more focused on results, when it becomes more focused on on the numbers, when it becomes more focused on just some arbitrary objectives that are out there, and it's not focused on how we do everything, when that's the case, we will become just like that. The ends justify the means. We feel that we can break any policies, break any rules. We can do whatever we want as long as what happens at the end is good. We just can't, you know, we, we can't be that way. We have to care that everything we do is good. We have to care that every decision we make is good. Not that it will work, but that it is good. Because sometimes good decisions look like they failed. Do you think Jesus made a good decision when he set his face on Jerusalem and he went there knowing that he would die on the cross? Of course we do. Of course we do. But he died on the cross. Sometimes, if we get so focused on the results, if we think that the objective for Jesus was to live as long a life as possible, maybe he could have convinced himself to say, you know, the longer I'm here, the more I can teach these guys. I've been with these 12 disciples for like three years and they're still stupid. They still don't get it. They still think I'm talking about an earthly kingdom. I need more time with him. He could have justified so many things delaying his death. He could have said, not today. I'm not going to set my my face towards Jerusalem today. It's going to be later. But no. He knew what had to take place. And he did it. I've talked about, you know, the two great, like, like threats to the church today. And one of them we've talked about a lot, and it comes in this idea of healthy church, and it's, and it's individualism. Or one of my students once said, syndividualism. It's when we, we think first and foremost about ourselves. We define ourselves by ourselves and those closest to us. And that's all that matters in the world. Individualism. And we've just talked about how that, that goes counter to what you know, Paul is saying is a healthy church when we put the interest of others before ourselves. But the other one is what I've just been talking about, this results-oriented movement. And it's, happened in, it's happening in churches, it's been, it's been happening among Christians where they're so focused on results, so focused on, on sharing the gospel and seeing people baptized and, and you know, just putting up the number after number after number. And they're so focused on that that they don't really care how they do it. That's called pragmatism. The two threats to the church, individualism, pragmatism. 
Churches used to find this common practice of, of saying, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go out into our community and we're going we're to take a survey of our community. We're going to knock on people's doors and we're going to say, we're, we're doing a survey from our church. But they weren't really doing a survey. Instead, they were trying to create an opportunity to share the gospel. And they were trying to use a survey, the ruse of a survey, to get in. Why you got to lie? Why you got to pretend? If you want to share Jesus with your neighbor, go knock on the door and ask him, can I share Jesus with you? Why do you have to trick them? Ends will justify the means when all we focus on are the results. We should know by now that so many times Christians don't get to see the results. We just get to do our part. We just get to move that, that checker one more square over. We don't get to see the victory. But we do it because we're obedient. So a good church, a good church doesn't just have good ends. Every church has good ends. Good church. Every mean along the way is good. So here's Paul. He's wrapping up telling this, this church at Rome. He's wrapping up telling them how they should live out their faith. And remember, he's telling them this where they're in an increasingly hostile environment. Increasingly. Christians are more and more becoming the target in Rome. And he's talking to them. And he said, in the midst of this storm, be like this oasis of, of love. Be this community that's so unlike everybody else that when they attack you, you bless them. And so he ends here. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Healthy churches, in fact, healthy Christians. We don't fight fire with fire. We don't say, well, they said that about me, so I can say this about them. We don't say, you know, they took my cookie, I can take their cookie. We don't fight fire with fire. Instead, what we do is, is we trust that our God, who is good and who is just, will deal with the, our enemies, will deal with those people the way he wants to deal with them. And we trust that however he deals with them, that it will be good and it will be right. And that's it. We leave it behind. We don't go out and avenge ourselves. 
What Paul is saying is he's, he's trying to help them understand what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He's trying to help them understand that when Jesus died on the cross, as the Gospels tell us, that at any moment, Jesus could have called a legion of angels to set him free. At any moment, he could have, he could have used his power as the Son of God to totally change the situation. But had he done that, he would have been telling the world, world, you are right. It is all about the strongest and the most powerful. But Jesus came to show us another way. Even though he was the strongest and he was the most powerful, what did he do instead? Like a lamb led to slaughter. Voluntarily submitted himself to being beaten, falsely accused, mocked, tortured in so many ways, and eventually executed on the cross. He didn't fight fire with fire. And he didn't because he was trying to show them, no, this is the way forward. This is the hope for humanity. When, when we don't think I gotta take revenge. It's when instead we extend love and mercy and grace. And so that's what he says. That's what Paul says. He says, don't do that. That's God's, that's God's business. Vengeance is God's business. Let him deal with it. And don't get mad at God if he doesn't deal with it the way you want. Instead, instead, bless those who persecute you. Love your enemies. And in fact, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Simple. Love your enemies no matter what they do. And I know what you're thinking, because I think the same thing. Oh, but you don't know my enemies. Oh, are you mean I'm, you know, I could be risking myself and I could be vulnerable? Yeah, it's exactly what I mean. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know what they can still do, do to me. You don't know what they're doing to me right now. Doesn't matter. We all say we want the unconditional love of God in our lives, then love unconditionally. Stop holding on. Stop holding on to your grudges. Stop holding on for your demands for vengeance. Stop holding on to your hurts that other people have perpetrated on you. And say, that's God's business. My business is to love my enemy. You know what I'm so grateful for? I'm so grateful for that because that's God's love. Because thank God that his love led him to love his enemies. Because if his love did not lead him to love his enemies, then guess what? None of us have any hope. 
Because this same Paul, earlier in this letter, says that while we were enemies, while we were enemies, God sent his son to die for us. While we were his enemies. He loved us so much. He was showing us, this is how you deal with your enemies. You deal with your enemies the same way I do. Thank God. Thank God God did not hate his enemies. The other reason is that we live as though there is always hope for our enemies. We are not given the foresight or the right or the authority or the ability to declare someone unreachable by God. And that's what we do when we want God to take vengeance or we think we should go take vengeance. No. There's always hope for redemption. It's not ours to determine We're simply to love our enemies. We trust God. We trust that God will bring justice. And if you really trust God, and if you really trust that God will deal with this, then you're free to love. I always wonder if there is that one person that one person that hurt you so deeply, who you feel is such an enemy, that when you go to heaven, after you die and you go to heaven, and you, you, you kind of walk in, or however we get in, I don't know, but you get in there, and then you see that person, and you're a little disappointed. Think about that. You know you have people like, wait, am I in the right place? How'd he get in? How'd she get in? How did these terrible people get here? It says more about us than it says about them. We should be grateful. We should be grateful that the person we thought God could not reach, he reaches and he changes. Well, healthy churches are not just leaving it up to God to deal with vengeance. They actually take action against their enemies. And the actions they take is they meet their needs. And understand, he's saying, meet the needs of your enemies. But he's really saying, meet the needs of everybody. He's saying, if you can do it for your enemies, you do it for everybody else, too. And he's saying, you meet their needs. You give them what they really need. And then he uses this kind of odd phrase for us. He says, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. See, when you still have a spirit of vengeance, when you still have a spirit of vengeance, you're like, oh, good. Because if I said I wanted to dump burning coals on your head, you would probably think that I don't like you. You would probably think that's going to hurt. That's punishment. 
And so if you're like, oh right, this is how God's gonna get vengeance, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna be so sweet and kind and good to that person that they're gonna feel so guilty and it's gonna eat them alive. And that's the punishment on them. If that's what you're thinking, you still have the wrong spirit. The spirit is not about vengeance on them. Remember that. Instead, when we serve our enemies, we're messing up their minds in a good way. We're making them rethink things. You see, the current generations are actually more out telling us things and saying things that all of our generations also thought. And what, what they're willing to say now, and it's been in our society for a while, is that you either agree with me and love me, or you disagree with me and hate me. And so any disagreement, hate. And then, of course, if you get really upset with them, and then you kind of disassociate with them, even more so hate. But if it says, you disagree with me, and you still love me. You disagree with me, and you still meet my needs. When I was starving, you brought me food. When I was friendless, you were still my friend. You did everything you could. When I was hurting, you reached out to comfort me. It messes up their minds in a way not to make them feel guilty so, they, so that they just feel pain and you're like, good for you. I'm glad you feel guilty. No. It makes them understand. It makes them understand something about God's love. God loves us even when he disagrees with us. It helps us understand what unconditional love truly is. And the picture is probably an Egyptian picture of, of like somebody who is repenting. Somebody who is repenting and you know, wanting to be penitent for their sins, they would actually have a bowl on their head filled with coals. And that's probably not pleasant. That's the picture. But the picture points towards repentance. You love your enemies because it is their only hope for repentance. It is their only hope to come to Christ. It is their only hope to get out of their lives whatever it is that makes them your enemies. Because if they're your enemies and you're living for Christ, then they are also enemies of God. And you are giving them their only hope. simply by meeting their needs. Well, the last point. It's a point we've already made. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Healthy choice, churches are always good, and they never give in to evil. And we talked a little bit about this already. What is evil? And it's anything that goes against God. Anything. We never do anything contrary to God's will. 
And we do not allow others to do evil on our behalf. I remember the, uh, when I first started driving, I used to drive a little fast. And I think in the first few months of my getting my license, I got like five tickets. Um, and I never did this, but I'm going to be honest with you, I wanted to do it. We had a police officer in our church who was a motorcycle cop. You know, and I know other people in the church had already asked him to go tell, because all you had to do is tell, is, is ask him to ask his friend or the person on the patrol not to testify, and then the, the ticket would be thrown out. And I remember that. And I remember thinking how tempted I was to do that. But there was something that bugged me about that. It's something bugged me that I had done something wrong. The police officer didn't do anything wrong. The police officer was just doing their job. And I was speeding. And here I am, a Christian, saying I believe in truth and I believe in what's right and goodness and I, and I believe in all of that and I'm asking someone to go lie for me. I might even be asking a non-Christian to lie for me. It's just not right. We, in Hawaii, we kind of look the other way. You know, we... You know, we, we kind of just think, you know, it's how, it, it's how it goes around here. It's not right. Healthy churches always do what is good. They never, never give in to evil. And so, you know, we kind of come full circle. We want to be good, and what is good? We want to do God's will, and God's will means that we need to be like Jesus. If we want to do good, we need to be like Jesus. But if we want to be like Jesus, we need to know who Jesus is. And the only way we're going to know who Jesus is is through discipleship. We have to become disciples. And if we're going to be true disciples, we must be living sacrifices. It's a healthy church. That's what it comes down to. Do we want to be good? Do we want to be like Jesus? Do we want to be his hands and feet? Do we want to be the body of Christ? We need to commit ourselves to discipleship. We need to commit ourselves to learning about God in such a way that that learning helps us become more like Christ. And so, it's full circle. It's the whole package. You see, this is the hope. This is the hope. If you ask me, can you prove that Jesus does what he says he will do. And if I said, sure I can, and I, and I take one of you and I say, look at this person. This person is, is so giving, so loving, so humble. And then that person who asked me says, oh, but she's just like my Buddhist friend. Or 
he's just like my friend who's an atheist. Have I proved anything? No, not really. Here's the proof. Here's the undeniable proof. If I could bring a group of people and I could say, look at these people, watch them for a month, see how they love each other and they interact, see how they serve one another, see how they're committed to God and his word, see the sense of community that's so deep in them that it is like no other. Look at that. See that. And show, it some, show me somewhere else where you can find the same thing. That's the proof. That's why we need healthy churches. We need healthy churches so when people say, what is the proof? The proof is the church. A community so deeply in love with God and so deeply in love with one another that it confounds the world. They can't figure it out. And they got to know why. And we can tell them. It's because of what Christ has done in our lives and what his spirit continues to do every day.